Good morning. Our scripture reading today comes from Luke 19, verses 28 through 48. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a coat tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd to him said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Then he entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's Super Bowl Sunday, you guys. I'm really excited. And uh, for the second time in two years, our Kansas City Chiefs are playing in the big game. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but part of winning the Super Bowl is you get to have a parade. And we had a parade last year. We used to do things like that. Man, those were the days. If you remember last year, right, it's like the Chiefs had just won for the first time in, in 50 years and everybody was ready to celebrate. It was the coldest day. I think it was the end of February. But still, thousands of people came out to the streets and to Union Station to celebrate uh, our heroes and their victory. The team drove these huge uh, entourage, you know, buses and trucks full of players and coaches and support staff and personnel and family members and trainers uh, all the way to Union Station. And if you remember, basically everything shut down that day. I think most schools closed for the day. Uh, many businesses closed. Uh, I think even those of you who had to work that day, your employers kind of winked at you and you had the TV on the entire time. And then at Union Station, the players began to speak, and that made sense, right? They're the ones who won the game. But remember, even civic leaders spoke at the Chiefs Parade, which is kind of hilarious to me. The mayor of the city spoke, representatives from across the various districts of the city spoke, 
Even the governor of the state of Missouri came to celebrate and made an appearance at the Chiefs' victory parade. Now, everybody turned out for a Super Bowl victory. Okay? After a long season and every twist and turn, every come-from-behind victory, it was the perfect way to end that time. Now, that picture is what should be happening in our text today. So Jesus, who for chapters and chapters and chapters in the book of Luke has been getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, literally like a third of the book of Luke, uh, every other story begins with the phrase, and on the way to Jerusalem. And all along the way, Jesus is doing the most incredible things. He's healing the sick. He's giving sight to the blind. Um, He's forgiving sins. He's teaching and showing what God's true kingdom is like as it breaks into our present reality. And he finally makes it to Jerusalem in our story today for his coronation ceremony, his victory parade. And it looks nothing like the chiefs. No big celebration, no speeches from the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests, no Roman military escort. It's just Jesus and his disciples. But here's the thing. None of that surprises Jesus. In fact, he knew this. And he's actually trying to tell us something. Something about the kind of kingdom he brings and the kind of king he will be. Jesus is not a normal king. He's the king in God's kingdom. He'll surprise us. He'll shock us as we get to know his power and presence in this text today. And we must choose him. That's kind of Jesus' point. What kind of king will you choose? Will you show up for his victory parade? Or will we want to choose someone else? So uh, get your Bible. Turn to Luke, which is the third book in your New Testament, chapter 19. We're going to start here in verse 28. Let me read a few verses here. And when he had said these things, that is Jesus, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So there's Jesus. He's on the Mount of Olives, which is a small mountain range just east of Jerusalem. And when you stand on the mount, you can actually see the old city, you can, the beautiful Jerusalem capital. And Jesus, before he enters in, he sends two of his disciples to go find him a ride because, you know, kings don't walk into town, they ride into town. Uh, in fact, if you were an original reader here, you would, if you understood more of this culture, you'd, you'd know exactly what was going on. When, when a king returns to his city in victory, Uh, He needs to look strong. He needs an entourage. He needs a a show of support. Uh, It's just good politics, right? Don't waste a PR moment. This is what kings do. So in a sense, you kind of understand what Jesus is is prepping for here. But then a few things stand out. First, Jesus has clearly planned his own party here. Uh, Luke doesn't come out and and say this, but it appears to me that Jesus has made a pre-arrangement with a family in one of these villages uh, so that he can uh, borrow their young donkey, a colt, to ride in on. And as he continues down the mountain, kind of beginning his victory parade, no one from Jerusalem seems to come and join them, at least as far as we know. 
Luke only mentions that Jesus' disciples and followers who were already with him begin to celebrate. They see Jesus as the coming king, but it's like nobody else does. In fact, the Pharisees who are watching this tell Jesus to make his disciples stop singing. They're like, you're not a king. This is not your coronation ceremony. Just look around, Jesus. This is kind of pathetic. That's a little later in our passage. And, and they kind of have a point. This is not the most overwhelming celebration we've ever seen. It is, in fact, downright underwhelming. And you've got to ask yourself, man, if, if Jesus is in charge of this and, and he made a plan ahead of time and he wanted to make a good first impression, was this the way to do it? And on a donkey, no less. I can't get over this. A donkey. Most kings, when they want to make a statement, they pick the war horse, right? The stallion. Big, strong, beautiful. That's the image we want, Jesus. That, that's the king we're looking for. But no, Jesus goes with the donkey. It's like going to the rental lot and picking the minivan when the Mustang is right there and the keys are in the front seat. Why? What is Jesus doing? What is he up to? Well, here's, here's why. There's an Old Testament passage from the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9. Listen to verses 9 and 10 of that passage. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this is a, a messianic Old Testament passage. It's a prediction of the coming king to Jerusalem. And Jesus, by riding on a colt, uh, on a donkey, into Jerusalem and recalling this prophecy, is telling anyone and everyone who's paying attention exactly who he thinks he is. This is perhaps the boldest and most public statement from Jesus about his identity in the entire gospel so far. He's saying, I'm the king. I'm David's heir, I'm the promised one, I'm God's son. But of all the passages Jesus could have referenced here to make that claim, and there are many of them in the Old Testament, he picks the one with words like humble, peace, peace to the Gentiles, to the nations, no battle, no revolt, no revolution, no war horse, no war chariot, just the donkey. And Jesus is presenting a choice. He's saying you can have the powerful king or you can have the humble king. You can have the king of war or the king of peace. You can have the king of power or the king of service. And for those who were watching this happen, I think that choice would have felt very concrete to them. You know, Remember, they are watching Jesus enter as king while staring down the Roman Empire and their occupation. There's a literal boot on their neck. And Jesus, at least by referencing Zechariah, I think is hinting that he did not come to solve that problem, at least in the way that many people were looking to him to do. So for them, I'd hardly need to make this point. They would understand immediately the difficulty of the, this choice between these kinds of kings. But we aren't in occupied territory. This is a little different for us. So I wanna phrase it a little differently for us. Where are we tempted 
to be disappointed in Jesus' humility. I'll be honest, when I look at some of the big picture problems that are facing our world today, that are facing the church today, uh, not just in uh, the United States, but all over the world, when I think about specific things in my own life, problems, fears, people, disappointments, right? Sometimes I find myself praying, Jesus, just do something. Just, just do something. I can't be the only one who prays like that sometimes. And even if you aren't sure yet about Jesus and you're watching and you don't really know where you are on this whole faith thing, but there's something in your life that you're looking to Jesus and saying, if you could, you know, Jesus, if you're real, just, just fix this thing. Take care of it. Don't you ever want to look at Jesus on this humble donkey and say, get, can you get off of that and get into your F-14 Tomcat and just get to work? Like, just take care of it? But Jesus shows, he's hinting here. He says, no, that is not how I operate. If you want flashy, if you want quick, if you want power and control, as the world understands those things, you've got the wrong guy. And likewise, if we are unwilling to follow the humble king with our own humility and patience and peacemaking, we've got the wrong guy too. You know, Jesus uh, is, is coming on a donkey, as Zechariah says. He makes it clear that the kind of war he is fighting is not about bows and arrows, but about hearts and minds. Is that our motivation? Is that our vision as followers of this king? Are we peacemakers as Jesus calls us to be? Are we more interested in winning people to Jesus than winning arguments about Jesus? Okay, we want the humble king or the powerful king. Jesus' disciples, at least for now, they're still on board. They see what Jesus is doing and they begin to sing songs of praise and they prepare his way into town. This is verse 36. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now they're quoting uh, Psalm 118 here, which was a, a song that pilgrims of worship would sing as they entered Jerusalem. But they add all kinds of royal Davidic imagery to it to give it this kind of king flavor as Jesus enters Jerusalem. The disciples are gearing up. They're like, here comes the champ. Here comes the king. Everybody get ready. And the Pharisees who are nearby are not happy with this. This is verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, this is a theme that will continue for the rest of the gospel of Luke. But but Jesus' audacity here to enter Jerusalem like, like this, the religious leaders will have none of it. They are not thrilled. They were willing to tolerate Jesus when he was a backwater Galilean prophet with a low profile. But this, this is too much. And Jesus won't stop. He says even the rocks would praise him if these people didn't. Okay, hold that thought. So all this momentum is building. He's getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. He's approaching the city, which would have been down from the Mount of Olives. And all the disciples are singing and they're clapping and they're dancing. Finally, Jesus is ready to claim his messianic throne and to change things. And it's like Jesus comes into a clearing and he, and he sees the capital, Jerusalem. He sees the temple. 
He sees the people. He sees all of it. And he just cries. He cries. And this isn't like he got choked up, you know, and kind of turned away. No, the Greek here is, is audible crying. He wails. He sobs. Luke doesn't tell us how the crowd reacted to this. But again, I have to imagine they were surprised. This is Jesus' big moment to look strong. And to put this in historical context, you know, about 150 years, 200 years before this moment with Jesus, there was a guy named Judas Maccabeus uh, who led a group of rebel guerrilla forces and defeated the superior Greek army who had occupied Jerusalem for some time. And he repurified the temple when they did that, and they reinstituted worship there. That's what the celebration of Hanukkah is all about to this day. Judas was a brilliant military commander who took down a superior military force. When he invaded Jerusalem, he came on a war chariot. He made a war cry and with swords drawn, he stormed the gates with his troops. Jesus, in his big moment, he sees the city and he weeps. Even the donkey has got to be thinking, Jesus, you are ruining this. Again, why? Why is he doing this? Listen to what Jesus says. Verse 42. Jesus now speaks directly to the city. He says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus knows and he prophesies here that the tension between Rome and Jerusalem would boil over. Forty years after Jesus utters these words in AD 70, the city and the temple would be utterly destroyed by the Romans, never to be rebuilt again. And we have historical records of what happened. And it was horrible, atrocious, awful things. And Jesus also knows that if somehow this city, upon his entrance, would repent and turn to him, that the things that make for peace, as Jesus puts it, could be true. This could all be different. But he already knows that he must be rejected and crucified and killed. So he weeps. And again, Jesus presses the choice. You can have the king who wars or the king who weeps. Jesus is the only one on that mount that day who knows that the peace Jerusalem needs and the peace the world needs and the peace that you and I need does not start with overthrowing our enemies. It starts with weeping. It starts with seeing Jesus for who he is, a king that offers shalom, which is the Hebrew for peace, which is more than just the absence of conflict. It's it's peace with God because we are all his enemies. Jesus is hinting here, man, if I came as a king of war, the war would be against you and me, all of us. So instead he weeps because he makes an offer as king of salvation and grace and forgiveness, but so, so many will not accept him. And he knows it. So where must we weep with Jesus? Again, 
I think for the original reader here, this was so in their face. Jesus weeps because he looks at a city and its stubborn leaders and its blindness, and he knows that will literally destroy them. They won't weep with him because they do not see what's coming. But there are things in our lives that make Jesus weep too. If you've not trusted him as your king, he weeps because that peace that you need is right here. He offers it to you freely. There are parts of our world. There are injustices in our world. Evils. We prayed for two of them this past month. The evil of the taking of life of the unborn. An evil around racial injustice and inequality that make Jesus weep. Are we weeping with him? And are we offering the things that make for peace alongside of him? And where are we the problem? Okay, this is where Jesus actually goes next. So he finally makes it into Jerusalem. It's the climax of this, his whole journey so far. He makes it to the capital. And here's what he does, verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, Jesus goes to the outer courts of the temple where buying and selling would have happened. Um, people needed uh, to buy animals for their sacrifice. Think about it. If you were traveling from hundreds of miles away to come make a, an offering at the temple, uh, you couldn't bring your animals with you. So you had to, you had to purchase them when you got there. And um, You also had to exchange money to give to the temple because you had currencies from all over. and It was all necessary for how the temple worked. And all of that, though, the temple leadership decided would happen in the Gentile courts, okay, the outer courts, where non-Jews were supposed to come and worship. And you don't miss this. From the very beginning, God's desire for the role of Israel right, was that the, gent- the nations would come and worship at this temple. That's where Jesus goes first. And he starts driving out those who are selling. And he quotes two passages uh, from the Old Testament, one from Isaiah who called the temple a house of prayer for all nations. In fact, he says, all the socially outcasts, okay, all the people that nobody wants, all the Gentiles, this is where they come to work. That's what my temple's for. And the second quotation is from Jeremiah, uh, who warned the temple leaders hundreds of years earlier that extortion and corruption have no place in the temple. He, he said, this cannot be a place of a den of robbers. Now, there's a lot of debate, actually, about what precisely Jesus is saying and doing here. There's lots of different opinions. Were the sellers price gouging? Was the corruption happening right there in the temple courts? Did Jesus perceive that the hearts of the temple leadership were far from God and they had become way more interested in the temple as a money-making proposition than as a place that facilitated prayer and worship? Did Jesus know that the religious leaders of the day would pretend to be pious at the temple on Saturday on their day of worship, but would go out and would do all manner of corruption and greed, especially with the poor in their everyday dealings with others. All of the above, we don't really know. But here's the big idea. The first thing King Jesus does is go to the temple, where, by the way, don't forget, there is a Roman garrison stationed right there to keep the peace. And rather than kick them out, okay, rather than saying, hey, you pagans, you, you uh, idolaters, get out of here. You're, you've, 
you, we're purifying the temple from you. Instead of that, he goes to his own people. And he says, why is the Gentile court full of this nonsense? This is a house of prayer for everybody. And rather than go to the corrupt Roman government, which is also right there in Jerusalem, and it was evil and oppressive, okay, don't mistake that. But rather than going to them, he goes to his own people and he says, you, not them, you have made this temple a den of robbers. I mean, imagine that. Imagine you're a Jew and your whole life, your hope is in Messiah coming to set things right. And there's all kinds of joys and expectations surrounding that. When Messiah comes, he'll set everything right. He'll free us from oppression. He'll make us the nation God designed us to be in the first place. Think of all that stuff. And then imagine Jesus gets here, your Messiah. You see him and he runs right into the church building or your living room, wherever we're worshiping. And he says, you are part of the problem. It's like, wow. Last choice. You can have a king who coddles or a king who confronts. This moment, more than anything, is probably what sets the religious leaders against Jesus most violently. The next verse, the religious leaders are ready to kill him, and they will kill him because he won't coddle them. In fact, he has just confronted them in the most public and embarrassing way he could have. Now, Jesus loves you just like he loved those religious leaders too. But he will not coddle you or me. He's not that kind of king. There are tables in your life that he needs to turn over. There are courts in your life that need cleansing. There are blind spots and corruptions and greeds that King Jesus will not tolerate. And King Jesus, when he comes into your life, he doesn't start with them. He starts with us, his people. So where is Jesus turning over our tables. If Jesus' people, as the New Testament teaches, are now the temple, if we are the temple, if we are his representatives on earth, where are we the problem? What would he say to us? What people do we exclude, at least in our hearts and minds, from worship and access to God? Where do we misrepresent King Jesus and his agenda in our lives, in our workplaces, in our families, in our words? In our actions. Because there is a daily, there's an hourly confrontation that King Jesus does with his people. Because his temple, his church, is a house of prayer and worship and truth and justice and grace for all people. The stakes are incredibly high. Are we willing to let Jesus confront us, even when that makes us uncomfortable? As you walk through this story, I don't know if you feel as I do, that Jesus is unrelenting. He throws down the gauntlet as his, his first act as king in Jerusalem. He drops the mic. He says, if you want me for a king, get ready to be surprised. Get ready to be shocked. Get ready even to be disappointed at times. Get ready to be confronted. And if you don't want that, you can have no part of me. I mean, the choice is stark. Crown him or kill him. There is no middle ground in Jesus' kingdom. And the implications of this will play out over the next chapters in Luke. Crown him or kill him. But if you can't crown him, then you'll kill him. Right? There's, there's, that's the choice. And even if you have crowned him, even if you are a Jesus follower, 
we are all tempted along the way to want the powerful warrior coddling Jesus that we make up in our minds. The Jesus who uh, will fight our enemies for us and will say the things we want him to say and will do the things we want him to do. We don't get over this choice. We pick up Jesus' cross daily and follow our humble king into rejection, into weeping, and crucifixion. Okay? And that's hard. That's really hard. But there's a tremendous hope hiding in this passage too. Jesus hides something in this entire story. I guess you could say Jesus has one more surprise for us. When Jesus, remember with me, is first coming down to Jerusalem, the Pharisees in the crowd, they tell him, hey, tell your disciples to stop. Don't let these people worship you. That's in verse 39. Jesus responds, if I stop them, the stones on this path will cry out. Now, here's the thing. I don't think Jesus was exaggerating. I think he was telling the truth. I think what Jesus is saying is, if, if you saw me for who and what I really am, if I revealed myself fully to you now, creation itself would erupt in praise. The trees of the field would clap their hands. The sun and the moon and the stars would sing. Heaven and earth would join in. Jesus is hinting here. He says, if I decided to, to do that, I could overwhelm the world with my glory and my power and my might, but I'm not going to do that. At least not yet, because that's not the kind of king I've come to be. Because some kings can hold the throne through power and might and intimidation and fear, but only King Jesus holds the throne through love and sacrifice and forgiveness. Some kings can win the wars of this world, and they're really, really good at it. But only Jesus can win the wars that are not of this world. Some kings can get everyone to cheer for them. They can get the, on the war horse and raise the war cry and they can storm the gates and the crowds love them. But only Jesus has to restrain the stones from crying out for him. And someday we will see that triumphant entry. We will. We will literally crown him with many crowns, the humble lamb upon his eternal throne as the old hymn puts it. So here's my advice. Even in your confusion and your frustration with Jesus, which will come, even in your questions and your doubts, even when he doesn't do what you want him to do and instead confronts you on your issues, here's my advice. Crown him. Crown him. Crown him Lord of all. What I want us to do now as an act of worship to King Jesus is to celebrate communion together. When we take the cup that represents his blood and the bread that represents his body broken, we pledge our allegiance to our King, remembering that he will come again and we will see his victory fully in that moment. And until that day, he is with us and we have each other as a family, as a kingdom under his reign and rule. So wherever you are, gather the elements, take a minute, and let's celebrate communion together.